Would you pray with me one more time before we approach God in his word? Blessed Jesus, you have loved us. Love us still. Love us now, Jesus, through your word. Your word, which is like a two-edged sword that pierces to joint and marrow. Your word, which proceeds from your mouth and both slays your enemies and causes the dead to live. Help us now, shepherd, as we come to your word. Help us to behold you. We desperately need to know you. We desperately need to have our faith strengthened and our hope reassured. We desperately need strength for the things that you'll put before us this next week. We know that your word is food for our hungry souls. And so we pray that you would indeed feed us as we come to you in your word. Open the eyes of our hearts. Open our ears. Soften the soil of our heart, we pray. Amen. Amen, friends. Our text for this morning is actually Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. Verses 18 to 34. This morning, we're going to see in this text the last of the miracle texts. We've been, remember, walking through Matthew 8 and 9 and seeing these series of miracles that Jesus has done, demonstrating his authority. We're going to see in these last two or last last section last three stories a couple of truths at least two truths that i want to focus on this morning one of those is that jesus does indeed perform mighty miracles in this text he's going to even raise someone from the dead and the other truth we're going to see and think about is that jesus often works his miracles in response to faith this is a feels like a dangerous ground for me because growing up in the word of faith movement which if you're not familiar is you might have heard of name it and claim it the prosperity gospel those kind of things the idea that somehow we can manipulate god with our faith to get what we want get god to perform miracles that we believe we need talking about miracles and talking about the connection between miracles and faith feels like potentially dangerous ground. And yet I think there's a twin danger that I want to be aware of and I want to try to avoid this morning, and that's looking at these miracle stories with just naturalistic lenses. We have this idea that the reality that we can see and feel and touch is all the reality that there is, and we operate out of that every day. That what we see and what we touch and how we perceive the things around us is what is ultimate, what is real. And we don't pay attention, we don't think more about the reality of the kingdom of heaven. And so I want to help us think about that reality through looking at these miracles together. We're going to look at these things today and discern what is the purpose of miracles and what is the role of faith in responding to or even eliciting miracles from our Savior. And we're going to see that miracles themselves are demonstrations of the presence of the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk more about that as we go through. Miracles themselves demonstrate the presence of the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to see that faith is the right response to the kingdom of heaven. And this is why we see Jesus honor faith the way he does. So we're going to look at those two things, miracles demonstrating the presence of the kingdom of heaven and faith as the right response to the presence of the kingdom of heaven as we look through our text today. So would you read with me as we read these stories in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18, excuse me, to 34. Matthew 9, 18, Matthew writes this. While Jesus was saying these things to them, Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come 
and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Amen, friends. Three last miracle stories. The next phase in Matthew's telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be a shift to Jesus sending out his disciples. We see another summary sentence in verse 35 as Jesus goes through all the cities and villages teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then we see him send out his disciples. And he's going to have another long speech like he did with the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to begin that next week. But for today, we want to focus on these three miracle stories. The purpose, I believe, of all miracles in the Gospels, at least one of the primary purposes, is to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven has come near in Jesus Christ. Miracles serve to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven has come near in Jesus Christ. Think about what Jesus preached in Matthew 4.17, right? The same thing that John was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus saw in himself the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, being inaugurated. When we talked about the main purpose of the gospel of Matthew, the main point In the Gospel of Matthew, the way I phrased it starts this way. Jesus, the Messiah King, climactically fulfills the Old Testament by inaugurating the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, as the Messiah King, is inaugurating or bringing near, bringing to bear the kingdom of heaven. And his miracles are one means by which he definitively demonstrates that. Miracles, as Jesus performs them, demonstrate what life looks like when the kingdom of heaven has come and Christ is reigning as king. Think about it for a second. Think about the miracles we've already seen in Matthew 8 and 9. Right? What did Jesus do in the beginning of Matthew 8? He cleansed a leper. He healed a Gentile. And he touched a woman And healed her of her sickness, right? In the beginning of Matthew 8, Jesus brought near those who are far from God. What does life in the kingdom of heaven look like? Paul summarizes for us in Romans, right? There is therefore now no separation from God. Nothing can separate us from God. Not life or death, angels or demons. We are secure in the love of God in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is giving a glimpse of that as he brings near those who are far off through these healing and cleansing miracles. Think about the disciples out on the boat 
As the storm rages and Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind and the waves and calms the sea. What is life like in the kingdom of heaven? Psalm 23 gives us a picture. Where does the shepherd lead us? Into green pastures and beside still waters. Right? Creation no longer rages against God's people. But creation cooperates with God's people in the kingdom of heaven. Just like it was in the garden. This is the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Or think about Jesus casting out the demons. As Jesus casts out demons, he's portraying the reality of life in the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven like? All of Jesus' enemies have been made his footstool. All of his enemies are judged and removed from any ability to harm those he loves. And Jesus, in casting out from these men who were being destroyed by these demons, casting these demons out, is showing us that life in the kingdom of heaven looks like this. All of these miracles, including the miracles in our text today, are manifestations of the kingdom of heaven. They show us what it looks like when Jesus really does reign. Think about the ones that we see in our text today. In the kingdom of heaven, or let me put it this way, where is there no death but only life? The only answer that fits that is in the kingdom of heaven, right? Revelation 21, death is no more. Jesus, to bring life to the dead, is demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Where is there no more blindness or muteness? The only place where that is found is in the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus raises the dead and heals the blind and heals the mute, he is taking what has been distorted and unnatural and making it natural. See, we tend to see fallen creation and we think, well, death is just a part of life, right? Like, death is normal, right? Death is not normal. Death is a distortion. Death is God's good creation turned upside down by sin. And what Jesus is doing is he's turning everything right side up. Jared Wilson calls this heavenly normalization, which I think is a great way to put it. Jesus is bringing reality in front of him into line with ultimate reality of the kingdom of heaven. And he's doing that because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Because in him himself, he has inaugurated this new kingdom that will one day fully be consummated at his return. It's not the fullness yet. There's an already not yet sense to the kingdom of heaven. But it is the kingdom of heaven coming near nonetheless. We see this as well confirmed later in the text of Matthew. As the story progresses, Jesus sends out his disciples... In Matthew 10. And then we see in Matthew 11. That John the Baptist has been arrested. Take a look with me at Matthew 11 real briefly. After Jesus instructs his disciples. He goes on to teach and preach in the cities. And then we read in Matthew 11 verse 2 this. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? This is John's way of saying, are you the Messiah that I've been preaching about or, or not yet? Is it time for the kingdom of heaven to come or not yet? Look how Jesus answers him. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does Jesus say are the signs that the kingdom of heaven has come near? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. What has Jesus been doing in Matthew 8 and 9? He's been cleansing lepers. He's been healing the lame. He's raising the dead in our text today. He's healing the blind. He's giving them sight. He's healing the mute. It's likely in the original text that that was both mute and deaf. All of these things are signs that the kingdom of heaven has come near, that the Messiah has indeed come. These are signs we're told in the Old Testament to look for 
indicating that God is bringing his kingdom to bear on this earth. Isaiah 35 talks about this. Listen to the way Isaiah writes about it. He says this, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. This is Isaiah 35, 3 and following. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. God is coming to rescue you, people. Is what Isaiah is saying to Israel, to God's people. And what should we look for to know that God is coming to rescue us? Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All of these things we're seeing right here in Matthew 8 and 9. These evidences that the kingdom of heaven is breaking through, is coming near, being brought to bear. Jesus, we've been talking about Jesus' authority in Matthew. And one of the very reasons he has authority is because he himself is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Right? His kingdom is being brought near. And Jesus, as the king, then has authority over every sickness. Both physical and social. He has authority over all creation, both physical and spiritual. He has authority over all reality, even to forgive sin. And he has authority over death as the greatest enemy. It's an all-encompassing authority. And it means that there is nothing that he cannot do for those he loves. He's going to take and he's going to use all of this authority as his kingdom is brought near. To secure fully his kingdom by defeating definitively death And the devil on the cross. And that's what he's doing. And that's what he wants his disciples to see. That in him. The kingdom of heaven. Has come near. This is the good news. Of the kingdom. That the new wine is here. As we saw last week. When Jesus said. You got to put this new wine. Into new wineskins. It's the good news. That the king reigns. That God has already answered the prayer, thy kingdom come, before his disciples were even taught to pray it. In sending his son Jesus. In bringing his kingdom near. And in demonstrating the nearness of his kingdom through these glimpses, these foretastes. As people are healed, as people are cleansed, as the dead are raised, as the storms are calmed. Jesus is declaring that he reigns. This is the good news of the kingdom that he preaches. In verse 35 of Matthew 9, it says, Jesus goes through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Right? Gospel means good news. This is the good news of the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. And it's evidenced by what he does. I think Jared Wilson puts it a helpful way in his book, The Wonderworking God. He says this, first of all, he quotes B.B. Warfield. He says, B.B. Warfield writes, When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but trailing clouds of glory, which he brought from heaven, which is his home. And then Jared Wilson says this about that. He says, because Jesus' very person was the perfect integration of full humanity and full divinity, he carried around with him the growing rift Between this world and that one. As he walked, his elbows traced both the air and the ether, stretching the limits of creation, the heavenly gravity pressing in at his movements. Jesus strained the capacity of this world with his very presence. The world's breaches were too small, in other words, for the presence of the king of the universe. And we should not be surprised that as the seams split, glory streamed through. In other words, Jesus, because he belongs to heaven, and because he has come down incarnate in earth and brought the kingdom of heaven to bear with him, all of the glory of the kingdom of heaven squeezes through in various ways. And miracles are just that. They're not merely confirming the deity of Christ, although they certainly do. They are actually displaying what his kingdom is like. And that the kingdom has come near 
in Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of miracles. This is the demonstration of what, of what they teach us. That the kingdom of heaven has come near in Jesus. And what we see in this text is that the right response to that reality is faith. Faith is the right response to the fact that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Faith is the right response to the presence of the king. We see two evidences for that in this text. One is the way Matthew highlights the rightness of faith. You may have noticed all the way through Matthew 8 and 9, as the kingdom of heaven is being put on display in the glory of Jesus Christ, Matthew is dropping some subtle and some not so subtle hints that faith is the right response. Look at Matthew 8 verse 10. This is in response to the centurion and to his faith. What does Jesus say? When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The inclusion of that in Matthew's gospel is not accidental. Okay, It's not like Matthew is just sitting there writing down whatever happens and then he just throws it all together in a hat and kind of comes up with what he puts in his book. He is being divinely led by the Holy Spirit to include certain stories and certain quotes and to not include others. There's more that Jesus did than he could possibly write down. And yet he wrote down what Jesus said to the centurion. Nowhere in Israel have I seen faith like this. He highlights the lack of faith in the disciples. In Matthew 8, verse 26, right? As Jesus is woken up, and he comes and hears the disciples say, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Matthew eight twenty six. he says to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Or in Matthew 9, verse 2, we see this. As these friends bring a paralytic to Jesus, looking for him to be healed, what does Jesus say? Or what does Matthew write, I should say? He says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. When Jesus saw their faith. He's highlighting, again, the rightness of the faith of these friends and this paralytic. We see that in our text today as well, in verse 22 of chapter 9. The woman saying, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. And then Jesus turns to her and seeing her says this, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Or down in verse 29, Jesus says this. In response to the blind men who say, yes, they believe Jesus is able to do this. He says, according to your faith, be it done to you. Matthew highlights the rightness of faith as a response to the presence of the kingdom of heaven. He highlights this, but even more than just mentioning it or recording these observations about it, he specifically records the way Jesus responds to these acts of faith. That is really remarkable about our text is that somehow this faith elicits a response from Jesus. Jesus is not indifferent to the faith that is demonstrated by his followers. He commends the centurion's faith. He rebukes the disciples' faith. He responds to the faith of the friends and the paralytic. He responds to the faith of the woman. He responds to the faith of these blind men. We can only assume, but I think assume safely, that Jesus responded to many other acts of faith that are not recorded in the scriptures for us. These evidences that faith is the right response to the kingdom then leave a couple of questions. One is, what is the nature of this faith that pleases God? And what about faith causes Jesus to respond to it? So I want to address those two questions one at a time. What is the nature of faith? And then what about faith draws Jesus to respond? First, we see in our text, what is the nature of faith that pleases God? The first thing I want us to see is that faith sees what is true about Jesus. Faith sees what is true 
about Jesus, namely in this text, his power and his authority. Look at what happens at the very beginning. Verse 18, a ruler comes, right? While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. What did the ruler do? The one who had power and authority in this world, he came in and he knelt before King Jesus, recognizing his authority. Likewise, how do the blind men respond to Jesus when he asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? In verse 28, they respond, yes, Lord. This is not a throwaway word. They're recognizing his authority. They cry out to him as the son of David, the one who would bring restoration to God's people in the line of King David, right? They're recognizing Jesus' authority. Not only that, but they're recognizing that he has power to help. Think about this ruler for a minute. Having just lost his daughter, he comes to Jesus because he thinks somehow that Jesus might be able to do something about it. Notice when Jesus goes back to the house, what does he find there? He finds flute players and other mourners. And that might seem a little weird to us, but in Israel, in culture, in in, in Jewish culture, hiring professional mourners was an expected act of the family in preparing for a funeral. So they would hire some flute players and they would hire someone, a wailing woman, who would wail appropriately because it's a response of grief. That was normal Jewish funeral practice. And so the rest of the family has clearly moved on and said, we know she is dead. And so we're going to start funeral preparations. And they hire these professionals who know she's dead. And what does the ruler do? He recognizes, yes, she is dead. Right? He says, my daughter has died in verse 18. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. He recognizes that there's something different about Jesus. It's the presence of the kingdom of heaven in him that he recognizes his power that he observes. Likewise, the woman who has done everything she can to try to heal herself of this bleeding disease that she is born with for the last 12 years. Mark records even more of what she tried to do to heal herself or to be healed through normal means, physicians and such. She has been able to not get any help, and yet she believes, if I only touch his robe, there is something about this person that they have power to help me. And so she goes and pursues that. Faith sees what is true about Jesus, namely his power and his authority. Faith also sees what is true about us. Faith sees what is true about us, our poverty. The blind men recognize that their only hope is that someone with power to heal them would have mercy on them and heal them. Right? It may be especially that they thought, as many did in the day, that it was some kind of sin that contributed to their physical malady. Some kind of sin in them or their parents, like we read about in John 9, right? Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? The common belief in the day was that something was wrong with them and so they needed mercy. And you know what? They were sinners. They did need mercy. That may not have been why they were blind, but they did need mercy. They recognized their own poverty and they came to the Lord of mercy who is powerful to display mercy. Faith sees what is true about us, our own poverty. This is what Jesus is getting at when he tells the Pharisees, they're asking him, in Matthew 9, 12, and 13, right? Why do, you, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? And what does he tell them? The well have no need of a physician, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. To call those who recognize their poverty to come and find mercy in me. Faith sees what is true about us, our poverty, and what is true about Jesus, his power. And then faith perseveres with hope in light of Jesus' power and in light of our poverty. 
Faith perseveres with hope. Notice the great hope displayed by these people in this text. The ruler comes, and what does he say? My daughter just died. The normal conclusion to that sentence is to stop there and break down in grief. But what does he say? My daughter just died, but. We don't usually say but after we say someone died, right? We might say but they're in a better place or something that tries to comfort us, but we don't say but there's something that we can do about it. And yet he does. He perseveres with hope in light of his poverty and Jesus' power and says, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. Notice the woman's perseverance in hope. She doesn't even have the, have the courage to come up to Jesus. As a, as a woman, as someone who has been bleeding for 12 years, she is unclean. She is equivalent to a leper. And she knows coming up to Jesus would be highly inappropriate. And so she kind of tries to sneak up behind him and get close enough to him. And she says to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. She perseveres with hope in light of his power and in light of her poverty. Notice the blind men. They cry out to Jesus as he's passing on. Have mercy on us, son of David. And look at verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And then Jesus says to them. So Jesus didn't stop when he heard these guys crying out, have mercy. He kept going and walked into the house. And then these blind men who had no way of seeing where he went, followed him somehow into the house. They persevered with hope in light of his power and their poverty. They walked by faith and not by sight, quite literally. The power of persevering with hope for all of these people is not in the hope itself. That's a common misunderstanding that we have today, right? That hope and hope is what matters. Don't lose hearts. Don't lose faith. Hope that something will get better. And through the power of positive thinking, you can somehow change things. That's not what this is. This is not hope in hope. The power is not in the hope itself, but the power is in the person. Jesus himself is the object of that hope. The power rests with him He is the one that is able to help. And persevering with hope in light of him is what faith looks like. Hebrews talks about it this way. And I think this is a good summary of what's happening in our text. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, the author of Hebrews writes, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists And that he rewards those who seek him. This is what we see in action here. That these people believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The one who has brought the kingdom of heaven near. And that he rewards those who seek him. And so they seek him persevering with hope. They see what is really real. And I think that's what the core of faith is. The core of faith is seeing reality with a capital R. We talked a little bit last week, right, about how Jesus himself is reshaping reality. By bringing the kingdom of heaven near, he has brought about a new set of circumstances, a new reality that's centered and anchored in him himself as God-man. And faith sees this reality. Van Hooser, Kevin Van Hooser, one of my favorite authors, calls faith the imaginative seeing that enables us to perceive God at work in the world. The imaginative seeing that enables us to perceive God at work in the world. It's a little bit like um, when I was a child, my dad owned a body shop working on cars. And one of the distinct memories I have with me and my brother is wearing goggles and having a wire brush and sitting under a car and scraping away at the rust as it all falls on us and gets all over us. We were, we were totally orange at the end. 
And we sat there scraping and scraping. Why did we do that? If all we could see was that there was rust and we had to scrape it off, and that was the extent of our sight, the extent of our imagination, then we would have interpreted it as somehow we must have done something wrong and this is punishment, right? Like, don't punish your kids that way and make them scrape rust off a car. It's not very good. But we would have perceived it that way. But we saw with the eyes of faith, helped by our dad, that what this was doing was actually contributing to the restoration of a beautiful automobile. A piece of art when it was all finished. But it wasn't there yet. We needed that imaginative seeing that children have. I think this is one of the reasons why we're called in the scriptures to apprehend God with faith like a child. Because children have the ability to have that imaginative seeing that enables them to perceive reality beyond what we can immediately see and touch and feel. And that's what we're called to do in faith, have that imaginative seeing that enables us to perceive God at work in the world. This is the difference between the centurion and the disciples, right? The centurion said, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a master of various soldiers and when i say go they go and my authority is real and i know that your authority is real too and so it must be like that and you must just be able to command with the word and heal he saw rightly because of faith and the disciples the disciples saw wrongly their faith was little and they looked around at the crashing waves and the wind and it was scary and they concluded That God must not really care. Maybe Jesus isn't the one we thought he was. They saw a distortion of true reality, not reality as it is. And in this text, the reason the ruler and the woman and the blind come to Jesus is because they see reality as it is. They have faith that enables them to see what is real and true. That Jesus himself has brought the kingdom of heaven near. And that means that in him, he has the power to help them. And so they come. They bring their poverty and they come with hope. And there's something about their faith that draws Jesus to respond. Notice in verse 19. How does Jesus respond to this ruler that comes and says... Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. In verse 19, Jesus rose and followed him. This is the language that's normally used of Jesus' disciples following him. Jesus is the one that people follow. Jesus doesn't follow other people. And yet here he is responding to this man's faith. Or in verse 22, which we briefly mentioned already. This woman says to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Jesus doesn't even talk to her, but he knows what's in her heart. And seeing her, he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Or in verse 29. After Jesus enters the house and the blind men follow him, and he says to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say to him, yes, Lord, they express this faith. He touches their eyes and says to them, according to your faith, be it done to you. Jesus responds to the faith of his people. What is it about that faith that draws Jesus in to respond? This text shows us very clearly it's not because of social standing or importance. Notice Jesus is on his way to help the ruler when he's stopped by what is arguably the lowest social class of the Jewish day. A woman who is bleeding and unclean. Someone way less important by society's standards. And yet what does Jesus do? He helps them both. It's not because of social standing or importance that Jesus is drawn to faith. It's not because of the strength or quality of the faith. Notice the woman's faith is a little bit superstitious, right? If I, if I just touch his garment... Which is one of the superstitions of the day that if you touched clothing of a holy man, you would be able to get healing. Jesus doesn't rebuke her about that. 
He's not drawn to her because her faith is particularly strong. She doesn't even have enough faith to ask him directly. She tries to kind of sneak a blessing from him. But she has a morsel of faith. Jesus is not drawn to respond to faith because of future obedience. I think sometimes when we think about how we respond to Jesus, we think about our faith this way, right? Like, Jesus performed this miracle that I desperately need, and when you do, I will be so, so faithful. How many of us have made a promise to Jesus in the midst of our desperation, right? But notice, Jesus helps these blind men and then tells them not to tell anybody. And what do they do? They immediately disobey him. Jesus is not really happy with that disobedience. It's, it's not like this is like, oh, well, I was just kidding. This is still wrong of them to do. It's still sin. But Jesus doesn't help them based on the fact that they will be good later. Jesus helps them because they come to him in faith. Faith is not a way to manipulate or control Jesus. This is the error of the prosperity gospel. That somehow we can read this text and say, according to your faith, be it done to you. And say, oh, they had enough faith to be healed. And if you don't be healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Or if you can't access a miracle, it's because your faith is not strong enough. But we don't see that in the text. We don't see that being the reason why Jesus is drawn in to the faith here. Furthermore, we don't see faith being something that these people can manipulate independent of Jesus, something like the force. I think many of us often conceive of faith that way, something to be grown and exercised like the force. And if you have enough faith, like Jesus says, you can move mountains, right? That's not what we see as the picture of faith in this text. Why is Jesus drawn to their faith? I think that the answer is because their faith is a response to what God has revealed. Okay, so here's how it works. God reveals through his son the reality of the kingdom of heaven. What is truly real? Faith apprehends that reality, right? Says this is actually how things are. And Jesus delights in this response. He delights when we see reality like he does. Jesus delights when we see that in him the kingdom of heaven has been brought near. Jesus delights when these people see that, yes, he really does have authority over death. Yes, he really does have authority over blindness. Yes, he really does have authority to heal to cast out demons, to calm storms. That is what's been revealed about Jesus, and he delights when his people see that revelation and respond by believing it. Respond with faith. Furthermore, Jesus delights to strengthen that faith by then revealing more of himself and his kingdom. So in other words, the man comes and says to him, My daughter has just died, but if you come and lay your hand on her, she will live. And Jesus doesn't just say to him, well, that's good. That's absolutely right. I'm not gonna, but I'm glad you think rightly. What does Jesus do? He says, "Uh, show me where. And he goes with, and he says, look, check this out. And he raises her up, right? Jesus confirms that their faith is not misplaced, that their faith is actually rightly ordered. He delights to strengthen faith by giving foretastes of the kingdom of heaven. This is what he's doing here in Matthew. This is what he does for his people. There's two things I want to conclude with together. One is verse 34, which we haven't talked about much at all. The last story where Jesus heals the mute man is so short that it's almost just there to show the different responses. And I think that's what Matthew is trying to draw our attention to, that there are different responses. All throughout, he's highlighting the goodness of these responses of faith. And what do we see at the end of verse 34? We see the Pharisees. The crowds are marveling. 
Verse 33, never was anything like this seen in Israel. They recognize that something is happening here that is out of the ordinary, that is, that is massively important. And what do the Pharisees say? The Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The Pharisees respond in stark, cold unbelief. It's a remarkable contrast from all of the faith exhibited by the rest of the people in these stories. And I think that is a warning to us that we must beware of the danger of unbelief. It's not just have faith, it's really good and important. It's also beware of unbelief. Because if faith is seeing reality rightly, then unbelief is willful blindness. And I think we don't take unbelief as seriously as we ought. If we refuse to see reality according to how Jesus has revealed it, then we are living in willful blindness. The Pharisees confirmed that. They were there. They saw many of Jesus' miracles. And they heard reports from credible witnesses of many of his other miracles. This is why they don't say, no, no, those guys weren't really blind. Right? Because they can't deny that they are really blind and now they see But instead, they spin the facts. They misinterpret deliberately what is happening. And they claim that Jesus is doing these things not because he is the Messiah, but because he is a spawn of Satan. The Pharisees embody what we read about in Romans 1. That what can be known about God is plain in creation. And what is our problem? Not that we can't see it, but that we refuse to see it. Our problem is not that we can't see. Our problem is that we willfully turn a blind eye. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness and exchange the glory of God for creation. Unbelief is ultimately a suppression problem and it's suppressing reality. And faith is ultimately embracing reality. That's what we're called to do. What does that look like now? What is faith? Exercise this way look like now. I think first of all, faith sees the reality that sin leads to death. And that obedience leads to life, right? We miss that all the time, don't we? We choose willfully to sin against God, knowing with an inkling that, we're going, that it's going to lead to death. But we don't really believe, maybe, maybe it'll be okay, maybe this one won't count. Maybe this won't be a big deal. God will be be lenient. We fail to see the reality that sin leads to death and obedience leads to life. And we must see this reality. Faith, perceiving what is real, will see this. Everything in our culture is telling you that sin does not lead to death. And so we must see with eyes of faith that sin leads to death and obedience leads to life. Furthermore, faith sees the reality that God works His work of sanctification in us through the ordinary means of grace. It takes faith, believing what God has revealed about himself and his ways, to believe that it matters at all that you read your Bible. It takes faith to believe that it matters at all that you gather with God's people on a Sunday morning. It takes faith to believe that it matters at all that you sing true things about God. All of these ordinary means of grace... That God has established to bring his kingdom to bear on his people. Only faith can see that these truly do matter and make a difference. The eyes of unbelief will look and say, you know what, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really make a difference. Or the eyes of unbelief will say, you know what, it matters tremendously and God is more pleased with me and I am closer to him and I have earned his good graces when I do my daily Bible reading. We can fall into either ditch. Faith is required to see God at work through the ordinary means of grace. Faith is required and faith sees rightly that all of history is headed towards the new creation. That the storyline of our lives is not that we live and die and that's it. But that all of creation is groaning with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That there is one day... 
Jesus returning to redeem his people fully and to fully establish his kingdom where there's no more death and no more tears. Where we dwell with God, there's no more need for sun or moon or stars because God himself is our light. This is the reality that all of reality is headed towards and pointing to, pointing to and that we must organize our lives around. And if we do not have the eyes of faith to see, we won't live that way. We will live like this life is all that matters. And we will fall in love with the things of this world. Faith is required to see Jesus' power in our poverty and to persevere in hope. We still do that, just like these people in these stories did. What it looks like for us, though, is recognizing what the whole of Scripture is teaching us, but especially the book of Hebrews, which is that Jesus is better than anything we could ask or hope or dream for. He is our treasure, and therefore we ought to persevere. Jesus is the source of all of our hope, the ground of all of our hope, and we need faith, the imaginative seeing, to enable us to perceive that is true doesn't make it true, but we need faith to be able to see it as true. This is what exercising faith looks like today. And God confirms this truth, not usually through massive miracles like he did in the New Testament. Jesus was particularly establishing who he was and what he was doing through these miracles. And we have the record of these miracles in the trustworthy word of God. So we don't in many ways need that same kind of establishment. But God confirms the betterness of Jesus and his good care for us through everyday providence in a million little ways and definitively through his word that shows these stories to be true. When we behold these things, our faith then is strengthened. Just like the, just like the disciples as they watch Jesus do all these things, just like the ruler and the woman and the blind people, as they were healed and the demon-possessed man, as he was healed, their faith was strengthened as Jesus confirmed the presence of his kingdom. Likewise, as we read these stories, our faith is strengthened. That's the purpose of them. So friends, the kingdom of heaven has come near in Jesus, and the question for us is, will we respond with faith? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that faith is both a response you require from us and something that without new hearts, without your spirit at work in us, that we cannot exercise in a way that honors you. Lord, I I don't even begin to understand how those two things work together, but I know your scriptures teach them. And so I pray that you would help us both respond to the reality of the kingdom of heaven as we read in your scriptures and as we see little glimpses manifest among us. Would you help us respond with faith that pleases you? And would you give us the gift of faith? Creating in us what you desire. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.